This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. John chapter 13. We will be looking at John 13, beginning at verse 18 and going through verse 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it by the work of your Holy Spirit, that in it we would hear words of life, words of comfort, even as we hear the words of our Lord on the night of his betrayal, 
the night he is facing his suffering and death. Uh, he wants to give his children hope, to give them peace that passes understanding. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we live in this world long enough, we are all going to face trouble, and we all do. We all face sorrow and difficulty and loss and betrayal. It is inevitable because this world is fallen and sinful, and we can even add to it with our own sin at times. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and last week we arrived in the Upper Room Discourse, the final night that Jesus spends with his disciples before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. Jesus knows what his disciples are still struggling to understand, and that is that he is about to leave them. He's about to be taken from them. And once he is gone, not only into death, but eventually into heaven in his ascension, it will be in the hands of his disciples to do the work that he has given them to do, the building of his church and the furthering of his kingdom on the earth. Jesus loves these disciples. We saw at the opening of chapter 13 last time how John recorded that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He wanted to help them, to encourage them, to prepare them for what was to come. And by extension, as these words and interactions of that night are recorded and preserved for us in Scripture, he wants to comfort and assure and help us as we live for him in a world of hatred and opposition and sin and difficulty. So tonight we come to a text where Jesus reveals what is about to come regarding his suffering and death and even how one of his disciples will betray him and others will fall away because of fear and cowardice. And yet, despite these difficulties, Christ will not be defeated and his disciples will remain his disciples, and even in this they will triumph by loving one another. What seems to defeat and demoralize and weaken the church, in fact, does not do so. For God is with his church, and Christ will build his church despite whatever hindrances come from the world, and even despite what God's own people in their sin do. So we will look at this text tonight in three points. First, we see disloyalty in verses 18 through 30. We see Jesus reveal Judas as his betrayer. Then second, we see duty in verses 31 through 5. Despite the difficulties ahead, Jesus' disciples are to love one another. And then finally, we see denial in verses 36 through 38. Jesus here will also foretell Peter's denial. So again, we have disloyalty, duty, and denial. Those are our three points for this evening. First, we see disloyalty in verses 18 through 30. We pick up where we left off last time after Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet, setting for them an example of service and humility and showing forth the gospel reality of the spiritual washing which those who are truly his disciples have received. They are clean. They are justified. They are forgiven of their sins. But there was one exception. 
Jesus raised that exception back in verse 10. He said his disciples were washed, but not all of them. Now, this probably would have left a lingering question in the minds of those gathered that night as to who exactly was not washed. Might even have created doubt in the minds of some who should not have doubted. But what was introduced in obscurity in verse 10 is now made clear starting in verse 18. Jesus says in verse 18 that he does not speak concerning all of them. What he has said before about those who are clean and those who are washed and those who as a result should wash does not apply to everyone in the room. Particularly, it does not apply to one of them. We see here that Jesus asserts the sovereignty of his election. I know whom I have chosen. God has specifically, willfully chosen those who belong to him. Now, this means that others are not chosen. So Christ has chosen 11 of the men who were gathered there that night, not only for salvation, but for his service, so that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But there is one, though not chosen for salvation, he has been chosen and purposed for something else. And Jesus quotes here from Psalm 41, 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. One of these disciples, one of these twelve, would betray Jesus, and Jesus wanted his disciples to know this. First, it would comfort them in the difficulties to come, because they would know that this was not happening apart from the will of God when it did come to happen. But it would also further authenticate and validate Jesus' words. He says what will come to pass, and it does without fail, even in fulfillment of scriptures given centuries before. In verse 20, even in the midst of announcing coming trouble, Jesus gives his disciples their commission. Though he is leaving, though he is departing, he will continue to work through his disciples They will carry forth Christ, and in doing so, carry forth the Father. To receive one is to receive the other. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. They are commissioned to carry on the work as Christ's earthly work is coming to an end. And then in verse 21, Jesus turns to the matter of the traitor. We see that Jesus is troubled in spirit. I mentioned last time that we see this juxtaposition between between Jesus' certainty, but also his distress in the face of what is to come. According to his divine nature, he had purposed what would come to pass and how. And yet we see that despite this, he is troubled. According to his human nature, he is wrestling with the apprehension of death, the sorrow of betrayal the crushing weight of God's wrath that he and he alone must bear in the hours to come. And Jesus is troubled when he makes plain what had previously been hinted at. One of the twelve, one of the closest of Jesus' inner circle, was going to betray him. Now this provokes an understandable reaction from the disciples. 
Just think about it this way. If I knew with certainty that someone here in the room tonight was plotting to murder me, and I said that someone here tonight was plotting to murder me, and you believe that, you would want to know who it was. It would cause a stir. Now, no one is plotting that that I know of. But in a similar vein, the disciples are troubled at this news. Someone is about to betray their Lord. Somebody from within. They want to know who it is. Not only are these disciples the friends of Jesus who trust in Jesus, but they would have also, by this point, shared a certain camaraderie and fraternity and friendship with each other. To hear that one of them was actually an enemy, an opponent, that would have been hard to hear. It would immediately sow doubt and discord and distrust in the room. In verse 23, we see that there is a disciple leaning on Jesus' bosom who is not identified by name. This is almost certainly John himself, because John never in his gospel identifies himself by name. John was sufficiently close to Jesus that it would not be surprising that he would sit right next to Jesus and even recline on him. Now, this is probably something culturally that we would not be comfortable with doing, but in that day, it would have been acceptable. It would have been normal. Now, some take this text, and they even twist it and pervert it in our very backwards and very confused day, and they try to say things like, Jesus and John had a homosexual relationship. And I hate that I even have to bring it up, because it is so grossly perverse and blasphemous. But I've heard this a lot in the sad state of our day, is that so many support this wicked agenda and seek to read it in the Bible. We need to recognize it and be prepared to answer and deal with it. No such thing is going on here. But since John is sitting right next to Jesus, since he has the place of privilege at the table... Peter, through John, wants to know who the betrayer is. So he motions to John somehow to communicate that he needs to ask Jesus, and John does. Now what happens next can seem a little confusing. We see that Jesus says that the betrayer is the one who is given the piece of bread that is dipped. And yet we see the disciples don't know the sign when it happens. It is possible, probably even likely, that Jesus' answer to John's question was only heard by John, who sat so close. It's also likely that some time passes between Jesus saying that he would pass the dipped bread to his betrayer and the act of actually doing it. And this would explain the sign coming to pass, and yet, as John records, no one else seeming to recognize what was going on. Because when Jesus finally does dip the bread and give it to Judas and tells him, what you do, do quickly, the others think something else is happening. Remember, Judas is their treasurer, albeit a bad one. He steals from them. He embezzles. They figure Jesus is sending him to run errands to buy food for the upcoming Passover feast, which was to be the next day, or to buy something for the poor. But Jesus knows and John knows, or at least figures it out later, and Judas knows. For at the very moment that Jesus gives Judas the piece of bread, we see that Satan entered into him. 
Now it is clear that Satan had been working evil in the mind of Judas before this. He had been thieving. He had been plotting and conspiring in his heart. But he had done so with restraint. He had done so within limitations. What occurs here is that Judas is finally and fully being handed over to Satan. The last bit of God's restraint of his wickedness is being removed. And Judas will work for Jesus' destruction. And ultimately, this will lead to his own. This is the destruction of sin. John Calvin, for instance, ties this text to Romans chapter 1 in the giving over of the reprobate to sin as is described there. The conscience is seared. Restraint is removed. Man is given over to his most perverse desires and passions. This is the depth of darkness that enters into Judas. Even though he has now spent years in the direct presence of the light of the world, so great and powerful is sin and Satan's deception that even walking in the presence of Christ for months, for years, cannot lift it apart from God's own sovereign electing and saving will. So Judas goes out and it is night. Not merely the night of the day, but for Judas, the darkest night of the soul. An impenetrable darkness that leads nowhere but sin and death and condemnation. But there remains 11 others in the room. What will Jesus say to them next? And this brings us to our second point. After disloyalty, we come to duty in verses 31 through 35. Once Judas has left, Jesus turns to address those who remain. With Judas's departure, the plot to put Jesus to death is irreversibly in motion. Jesus' next words seem to include an acknowledgement of this. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now it is a bit ironic that Jesus uses this language of glorification to describe what has come and what is about to come. Because the situation on the ground seems to be one of fear, of darkness, of coming chaos and sorrow. Jesus' ministry has so often come into conflict and collision with misplaced expectations. He rode into Jerusalem and received a king's welcome from people who wanted a king. But some wanted a king who was worldly. They thought their king would be glorified with a crown and with a throne. And yet Jesus' glorification by which he glorifies the Father and accomplishes the redemption of his people will come through betrayal and suffering and death. This is glorification because it does not end with suffering and death. After Friday, there will be Sunday, and Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. And in doing so, God will be most glorified as death is conquered and the mission of the church thus begins. The disciples will receive the Holy Spirit and will proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth. But there is trouble immediately ahead. And Jesus wants his disciples to respond to that trouble in a certain way. He turns to this in verse 33. 
Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. There are actually two applications to this statement. By the next night, Jesus will have died. His soul will be in heaven and his body will be in the grave. His disciples cannot go with him into death. Just as the Jews he addressed before cannot go with him there. But he is also speaking of something more ultimate. After his death and resurrection, he will remain a little bit longer on the earth, but then will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he remains even now. And so in their remaining life on earth, the disciples could not go there. They had to stay behind, for there was work yet to do. And so it is with all Christians since. As long as we live in this life, as long as we remain on this earth, in body, in the flesh, Christ is absent from us. He remains with us by his word and spirit, but he has bodily ascended into heaven. Now this will be unpacked more in the next chapter as Jesus explains where he is going and what he will do and how his disciples will be reunited with him. But for now, he is going where he cannot be followed. His people will have to wait for a time to see him again. And those who do not belong to him will never see him again, except at the throne of judgment when he casts them into eternal condemnation. But in the meantime, what are his disciples to do? He tells them in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now this is probably one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. Everyone knows that the call of Christ to Christians is to love one another. What does that mean? It is not uncommon to see this verse offered in defense when sin is confronted. Well, we know that's wrong, but Jesus told us to love one another, and we need to just love one another. Some of us, some use this statement to advocate for the passing away of the law that this new commandment supersedes all old commandments. What does this statement really mean? Well, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He says it himself elsewhere. He does not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And it is, in fact, in the law where we see how we are to love God and how we are to love one another. This is Jesus' teaching when he offers the great commandments in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. For the Christian, love is rooted in the law. It is according to the law. It is according to the word of God. We love by obeying God and what he has commanded us to do. Not only what he has commanded concerning himself and his worship, but also how he has commanded that we treat others. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to get a copy of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Read what it teaches about the Ten Commandments, the comprehensive but biblically grounded ethics that are set forth in God's law of how we are to love God and how we are to love neighbor. But this raises another question. 
Christ says we are to love as he has loved. How do we do that when Christ lived without sin? He loved perfectly. No one else has ever loved perfectly. In a certain sense, we cannot achieve the love with which Christ has loved us. This is why we need his atoning work. This is why we need his righteousness imputed to us. But with our justification also comes sanctification. By the power of the Holy Spirit, those who belong to Christ, those who are forgiven of their sins, more and more are given the ability to love and serve God and man as God has prescribed. What will characterize Jesus' disciples once he departs is their love. Christ's people fulfill the law of love. They love by the law, never perfectly because we remain fallen and sinful in a fallen and sinful world. But more and more as we are conformed into the image of Christ, we love one another as Christ has loved us. More perfectly, more completely, more sacrificially. That is how we are called to live until Christ returns. But this talk of departure, leaving aside this talk of love, it brings up a question in the mind of Peter. And this brings us to our final point for this evening. After disloyalty and duty, we come to denial in verses 36 through 38. In verse 36, we see that Peter asks Jesus where he is going. He does not yet understand what Jesus must undergo what he must suffer, and how he must then afterwards return to the Father. Jesus answers somewhat cryptically, but truthfully. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Again, there's the two layers of meaning to this text. Jesus is going into death. His disciples will not go there yet. Eventually, all of them will. Many of them even for the testimony of Christ. According to traditional and historical accounts, all of the disciples but John will be martyred. John will nearly be martyred, but will survive into old age. But furthermore, and this is what transitions us into chapter 14 for next time, Jesus is going into heaven to prepare a place for his people. And eventually his disciples will follow him there. Peter seems to sense that something related to suffering and death is included in Jesus' words here because he responds accordingly. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now these are not entirely empty words from Peter. Peter has a certain zeal and a desire not only to follow Jesus, but to lay down his life for him. By the end of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter will take up a sword and attack a guard to try to protect Jesus from being taken. It is misplaced zeal. Christ must be taken, and he needs no man to defend him with the sword. But Peter, at least for now, is willing to go there if that is what it takes. And yet Peter, too, in his worldly zeal, will falter. Jesus answers in verse 38, Will you lay down your life for my sake? 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. This will come to pass. By the next night, once Jesus is arrested, Peter's courage will leave him. Not only will he deny Jesus, he will do so in ways that are even rather pitiful. One of the times he denies Jesus is to a servant girl. Not exactly someone who's going to be a hostile witness or a threat to Peter. But Peter will fail. Peter will deny his Lord. His fear will get the better of him. Now this is not told to him to frighten him. Note how Peter's denial is presented in a very different situation and context from Judas's betrayal that we looked at earlier. It's clear that, G- that Judas is departing to death and to condemnation. There will be no coming back for Judas. Now, Peter will also fail Jesus in the critical hour, but Peter will be forgiven. Peter is restored. Already it is clear that Jesus belongs to Jesus, and though the intervening trial will in certain ways undo him, he will be delivered. So what do we make of this text here tonight? In this world, we will have trouble. We will sin. We will fail to perfectly love as Christ commanded his children to do at the time of his departure. We will deal with betrayal. We will deal with the unfaithful around us. But there remains grace and forgiveness and preservation to those whom God has called and justified and redeemed. That is the hope of the gospel. And with that is the hope that one day we will go where Christ has gone and live forever with him. Again, we will look at this in greater detail next time. But for tonight, it is sufficient to know that Christ's promises are true. Now, his commands are also true. In light of the salvation we have in him, we are to love one another as he has loved us. Perhaps you are here tonight and you have not heard or understood or believed this gospel of forgiveness of sins. All of the suffering that Christ underwent was for the sake of redeeming a people for his name, to pay the penalty for their sins and to impute his righteousness and obedience to them so that they might be accounted as righteous before God, so that they might pass the final judgment and go where Christ has gone. If you hear and believe this, the call is to repent of your sins and believe in Christ for forgiveness of sins and his righteousness and your salvation. But if you belong to him, Christ's command, as he gave to his disciples, is this, love one another as Christ has loved you. Heed his word, care for his people, seek to put your sin to death empowered and strengthened by the Spirit, and live before the face of God, which we will all one day behold. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for the hope of the gospel contained in it, even in the face of trial and tribulation and betrayal and our continuing battle with sin and the flesh and the devil. We thank you that you are with your children, you are for them, that we have the hope 
that we have in Jesus Christ, that where he has gone, we will one day be. I pray that we will live in light of this hope, lives in which we love you and worship you and love one another as you have called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.